0: Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the revaluation of nature. We'll think axiomatically about the value and valuation of nature using concepts from economics, ecology, philosophy and wildlife studies. What is nature and should it be valued? Must an attempt be made to save tigers and why? What is the meaning of priceless in economics? Why is diamond more valuable than water? What have been and are the evolving interrelationships between society and economy? Does the earth really need us to care for it? What are some different philosophies of conservation, and why is it difficult to define sustainability? Are we stuck in a crisis? And is there a way out? We are pleased and privileged to have three SYN talkers with us here today. Professor A.K. Inamul Haq, who is an academic Teaching economics and environmental economics in East West University in Dhaka. He has also been working as an advisor to Sandy. Dr. Dulas Karanth. He is from the Wildlife Conservation Society and is interested in carnivore ecology and conservation and is involved in science that can be applied to conservation. And Dr. Aseem Shivastav, who is an independent writer and an ecological economist, he lives in Delhi. Aseem, why don't we set the ball rolling with you uh, with a very quick take on what the word valuation and value means to you and how have we come to conceive of it the way we conceive of it today. Um, Maybe that's a good place to begin and then we'll travel in other directions.
1: Well, I look at uh, value from two perspectives, broadly speaking. One is uh, as an economist, and mm-hmm. my training was in political economy, especially mm-hmm. classical political economy. Uh, the other perspective, which I look at value from, is philosophy. So I'll say a little bit about both. Sure. Uh, in economics, as uh, as you probably know, uh, since the days of Adam Smith, which mm-hmm. means over two centuries ago. Uh, there was initially what is called the labor theory of value, yeah, which is to say that Ricardo the, and others, yeah, hmm. the the basic argument was that it's the amount of labor which goes into the production of something which determines its value in the marketplace ultimately. So the price actually reflects some part of that. So
0: it's input based in a way.
1: Yeah. But having said that, from a contemporary ecological perspective, what I find to be the major failing of that perspective on value, and in fact, all succeeding perspectives on value in economics, is the fact that the other aspect of what goes into the making of something, which is natural resources or nature, as you say, more generally speaking, mm-hmm. uh, that plays no part or very limited part. Uh, in the classical theory of value in economics. Uh, so today one will have to do energy accounting, one will have to look at resource accounting in a much more rigorous way, and people are doing that. Mm-hmm. Now, That's as an economist. Sure. As a philosopher or from a philosophical perspective, what I will say is that one must think very carefully, very, very carefully about a few different things. So one is, what is value? hmm Second is, is valuation the same thing as measurement? Mm-hmm. And the third question is, is measurement the same thing as measurement in terms of money? Mm-hmm. And some might add a fourth question, which is, is measurement in money the same thing as measurement in dollars, since the dollar <laughs> is the reserve <laughs> currency? Sure. Yeah. So one must make a distinction between these four different things. Because not all things valuable are measurable, not all things measurable are measurable in terms of money, Mm -hmm. and not all things measurable in terms of money are measurable in terms of dollars.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And is there some sort of uh, conflation of the concepts of price and value here?
1: Oh, in practice all the time, which is why this latter set of distinctions become so crucial. I mean, my own, uh, you know, in my fits of frustration, what I feel today is economics needs a new Adam Smith. I don't know if Professor Huck would agree, (laughs) but Adam Smith's main burden in the wealth of nations is to try to distinguish between gold as a store and a symbol of value and wealth. Gold is not the same as wealth. Gold is a symbol of wealth, which is why the diamond water argument is so famous, right? Right, right. So for things to have wealth, they must at least have some use value, which is intrinsic to the item. It shouldn't just be a medium of exchange. I mean, the dollar has high exchange value, but does it have use value?
0: So the use value, exchange value argument, again, the Marxist sort of thing.
1: Well, Marx got it from Smith and Ricardo. Right. Uh, right. Smith and Ricardo come before Marx. Right.
0: uh professor Huck, what do you have to say to that is there uh, why is diamond more valuable within courts than water does that surprise you uh, in any way well
2: it's uh, well, this is a as a paradox in economics and, right. and if you look carefully in terms of the concept of value i think the the way i i look at it is the concept of value should be mostly determined from the level of satisfaction that you get from a utility perspective.
0: And the you being uh, uh, and, us as human beings? Yes, yeah, as,
2: as, as a- human beings. So that's unfortunately the other part of it that you never consider is it valuable for the animals or valuable for human. Mm. So the value is how much satisfaction, how much uh, welfare you derive out of a product. That is where the value is. And when I say you, it means human being. Right. Price, on the other hand, is a transaction item. It's, a, it's, a, it's basically driven by the what is the exchange mechanism of it so i may so
0: price is always a signifier of exchange value exchange always value. An underlying so let's, let's,
2: let's say take this uh, if you know if you buy a glass of water the price you pay and the value you get are completely different the value you get is much bigger and that's why you pay that so in other words when you look at the exchange side you realize that the money i'm giving up which is also losing a level of welfare but right. the but the, by the drinking water, the level of welfare I gain is bigger, and that's how the exchange mechanism works. So, uh, but but the point that I think I you know I look at it value as is still a chauvinist for human being. We don't look at the value for anybody else. We that only,
0: still doesn't explain why diamond is more.
2: Uh, because people get more you know, so it's a scarce resource. So if it is scarce, remember the price exchange values is determined by the supply and demand. If something is of oversupplied, doesn't matter how much utility you get out of it, the price is very low. And whereas the product that is undersupplied, you get a high value of it. But so if you think
0: th- of diamond in labor theory terms, as Asim was pointing out a little while ago, uh, obviously it's not easy to uh, extract diamonds, mine it, polish it, get it where it gets to finally. Uh,
2: that That is true, but but it uh, the exchange value is actually determined by those all those parameters in terms of supply and demand. So it's like production cost of production comes into the supply side of it. And then you have a demand side of it. Okay, So on the other hand, if production cost is very low for water. that's why water, even though it's a valuable thing for human being, life's, you know one of the elements of survival steel has a very low exchange price so I think I differentiate between this value as a concept which is welfare concept whereas price is more of a concept of exchange
0: Hmm. 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 why don't we travel to you uh, Dr. Karanth you've done a lot of work with tigers over the years Uh, and you know if one were to ask a question somewhat simply what are tigers worth in a very naive sort of a way and you know we have heard some conceptions of value valuation price value uh, what are tigers worth? Is there a way of coming at it conceptually?
3: Yeah, I'm sure there is, and I uh, I tend to actually go with the two economists in the sense that ultimately we, because we are managing the earth today, we are custodians of the earth. We humans, everything has to be finally valued in terms of our perception or our satisfaction. I have no quarrel with that mm-hmm. because I don't think we can give equal weightage to the opinion of the tiger or the prey species or the mosquito. So you're or okay something. with that?
0: You're okay I, with it being an
3: anthropocentric? Yes, absolutely. Because sure. we are living in an anthropocentric world. So then the tiger, in some sense, just like the gold and the diamond we talked about, is symbolic of... A whole lot of things. Today we realize that natural areas in their original form, even compared to, say, 10,000 years ago, have shrunk to 3 or 4 percent of the Earth's surface. Today there are hundreds of utilitarian arguments for the welfare of humans that are being made that this biodiversity should be protected, it has ecosystem function values, it has potential materials that are of immense economic use, and particularly with the rise of synthetic biology and genomics and things, there's an incredible amount of wealth locked in there as we run out of hydrocarbons in the future. So this is all for human, human good. So, to me, species like the tiger, which capture a lot of that diversity in in a very arresting psychological compass and get people... So, it's a surrogate for you. It's a surrogate that makes people act. But there is also some other value that I see in it, just like the value we humans have for music or art or aesthetics or great architecture or whatever an ugly concrete building and an architecturally beautiful building may have the same utility or function. To me, what nature designed is irreplaceable in some sense. So to me, uh, what nature designed is as valuable or more valuable than the music and the great art and the dance forms that we have invented in the last 10,000 years. So to me, that value is also important. Tiger is a symbol, but I'm talking about wild nature in general.
0: So, uh, some or a lot of this value is aesthetic for you?
3: I would say both. I, I would argue, in fact, to me, the utilitarian value is more rational and it exists. That predominant, because if, if your belly is not full... If human satisfaction is not achieved, there won't be time for doing Bharatnatyam or something else. So, sure. obviously, the aesthetic and the, even a moral dimension comes later, but sure. it does exist.
0: Sure, sure.
3: And if one were to think of
0: it in a very hard-nosed, quantitative sort of a way, uh, Prof. um, is there a way to put a number to these things? I mean, you're from Bangladesh, Sundarbans are there. Is there a way to say how much they're worth? It's very difficult it may be nonsensical to it, it probably a, all
2: the the issue of making the value for a nature uh, you know, remember the objective of it is not trying to buy or sell the nature the objective of putting the value is to how do you look at it compared to an alternative use and and that has to be understood so, so we are not what s- is the use of sundarbans uh, in other words, if you look at it, you can convert everything into another uh, Hong Kong. That's also possible theoretically. <laughs> so I'm thinking about you know, you think about what is, the, what is the exercise we do in valuation. The objective of the exercise is to see what is shown through the market. And the problem with the nature, a lot of it's not in the market.
0: It doesn't and flow via the It market.
2: does not go into the market the products and the services the nature provides to us are not in the market and if it is not in the market in the market mechanism it loses out you start pushing the frontiers of our economy over to the environment And
0: in what sense do you say that it does not flow via the market like would you are you in a way uh calling for it to be a part of the market mechanism or you're stating that as a fact that it's not a part of the market mechanism
2: it's not calling it's like you think about it the market has uh, some exchange mechanism established for the products in order to be in the market there are certain criteria
0: but there was a point in time when water uh, we used it was, it was it, not a part of the well, market mechanism but yeah, it now
2: is uh, that's that is true but that has I give you this example to make sure that we understand this. If there are certain products, in order to be them in the market, it requires certain basic characteristics, mm-hmm. and some of the natural products <laughs> fail to be within those parameters. As in, they cannot be productized. Uh, well, it is not that it cannot be. It can be shared together so it's a public good issue mm-hmm. sometimes so in other words i can use it you can use it and nobody you know compete with each other and in that case it free cannot, air you no know, free so, air so there are this kind of failures there are some products where um, you know f- fish as a resource you look carefully uh, it moves so you don't know the ownership is never defined properly you don't <laughs> no see, one knows the fish. no one knows well no one knows who you know the definition of fish is once i catch it i own it
0: yeah. <laughs> but
2: if it, is, if it is in the ocean, uh, whose property it is? So all of this leads to certain what is known in economics market failure. Mm-hmm. And when the market fails, the products are not in the market. And that is the time other products take over and said, oh, this has no value, so we have to go. That is the reason why environmental valuation exercise comes. So it is not coming with the notion of making a price tag for a Chunderbond forest or for a nature and saying, this is the number, this is the number, you look at it. It's rather looking at that, what would be the cost if I lose that? How much human welfare will be lost if we lose that property from the nature? If we take this property out of the nature, put into a, urbanized economy take this as an example then that is an issue that for us to think through and Let's that go is go
0: further with that professor Huck. how does one do something like that so sundarbans what is how would you how would you do an analysis of that sort uh, with a with a well, paradigm of that nature
2: there are there are different approaches to it so one approach to think through in terms of the human side of it we are all chauvinist as human being is that what is the use value of Nature and what is the non use value of the
0: nature? The total value. So that's where
2: the total value concept comes that if I lose these resources, how much use value will be lost and how much non use value will be lost. And within the use value, there is a subdivision of it. So,
0: use value in the case of Sundarbans would be the fish you manage to catch, the The earnings uh, you get from uh, tiger safaris and things of that sort?
2: The tourism and everything else. And within use value, there is also two parts of it. One is for this generation. Mm-hmm. And one is for the future generation, right? So you start to dif- divide these into this context, and then start looking into the techniques of valuation, and then say, you
0: get the net present value in some form. And
2: you want to get the total worth or net present value of it, mm. and and that is the la- there's the principle of doing it. Sure,
0: yeah. sure, sure. So in the case of Sundarbans, what would that be? Would the total value be ten 20, times of the use value, twenty times oh, the
2: use value? Very difficult. If I look at some of the you know, literature that people have. You know, Kostanja is one one referenced material, and for for his work, he said it's almost, the, you know, thirty times the value of the GDP. In other words, that's you get. So the
0: value of Sundarbans is thirty
2: times the. No, this is not well. Sundarbans as such, but okay. as a nature's value is is the, is much higher then what is the flow of it? But I think my point is that I don't want to see that value as this number. Sure. I want to see the value that as a competing with other values. So you want to keep it subjective. Exactly. Rather than somebody come up with an idea, this is the value of Shundarbon, as if Shundarbon is up for sale. If you find (laughs) find better value than this, destroy it. That's not the concept of value of nature.
0: So it's vulgar for you in some way to put a number to it?
2: Uh, I'm not saying I'm not going to put the number, but I'm going to... Contextualize it clearly before sure. I put the number.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, no,
2: quoting sure. a number is, is a dangerous one and say, look, anything you find better than this, change it.
0: Sure, sure, sure. What do you have to say to that, Asim? We've been listening to the economics point of view, and does some of that resonate with you? I mean, what what yeah, is I mean, priceless for you?
1: Um, well, these are very, very familiar arguments to any environmental economist, of course. My problem with it is the following. Uh, two sets of problems I'll discuss one is that uh, I'll t- look at the easier one first and neither is easy but this is less hard than the other sure uh, when we say that the context as professor Haak is rightly saying is that is not of buying and selling nature so much as, making decisions concerning alternative uses one question I'll have for professor Huck and anybody who gives that sort of an argument would be who does the contextualizing right so for instance uh, if it's an economist in a seminar room doing the contextualizing you will reach one set of conclusions or even if it's a conservationist doing it if it's a financier doing it you'll reach another set of conclusions Now, you look at, you mentioned water, you look at the history of the water market, or for that matter, you look at the history of the land market itself. Right. Right. Now, there's a time in this country and in Europe when land was not for sale. Yeah. Right. It was commodified, it was monetized, and now nothing is more saleable than land. Yeah. In most cases. Likewise with water. Now, when you and I were growing up, I mean, at least when I was growing up, I don't recall buying a water bottle in India ever. Uh, It was well into my 30s that I started buying water bottles, right? I have predicted uh, in a public forum recently that, you know, the time is not far when Delhi, which, which is where I live we'll be selling oxygen cylinders at 700 rupees a cylinder for those who can afford (laughs) and a mask to go with it and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, breathing masks and so on. So, uh, you know, the way that the modern economy works has to be understood historically, which is to say that something which is inconceivable as an item to be bought and sold, primarily, comes to be. Comes to be. Yes. So the commodification happens, the monetization happens, and before you know it, there is a market created uh, in the beginning it may be a meta market or a shadow market and you know from finance how those things become actual markets and you start trading in all sorts of green futures which were not tradable in the past yeah so while the economist the conservationist or the philosopher can you know can judge of these things we might think in a more rational or sensible or long term way the short termism of finance will kick in sooner or later and decide as to whether this thing is to be bought or sold or but there's not. there's some
0: sort of an intrinsic impetus in these sort of things. I mean, nothing has ever g- gone into being a market product and receding away from it. I mean, it has a life of its own. So, now water is a product, and it is. It shall ever be. Uh, Land? I doubt
1: I doubt it. I, yeah. as a philosopher, as a historian, i would I would doubt it very much, ok. I think that we are used to seeing so much irreversibility mm-hmm. that we forget that history often moves in cycles and spirals. Mm-hmm. So a time might return when water might not have market in the in the sense like land,
0: for example, um, when was the first land sold? Now, it's not a factual question. It may have been several centuries ago in some part of the world
1: I mean, in India, it was in the eighteenth century. Uh, the
0: first yeah, land parcel yeah, actually getting sold, yeah, yeah, and then it's been sold since then. Now that's not a terribly long time on a historical scale.
1: Hmm. Yeah, hmm. So, okay. so 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 that's one set of concerns I have. The other set of concerns I have have to do with the anthropocentrism underlying all this. Mm-hmm. And here I'll make a distinction between two categories. One is anthropocentrism and the other is anthroporesponsiveness. Sure. Now, the kind of argument which Professor Karanth gave, which I like very much, uh, whereby we have some sort of a duty at this point, given the technologies at our disposal, we have some sort of a duty by virtue of being members of this species mm-hmm. to actually take certain decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, are we to take these decisions just on our own behalf or in some larger conformity with some truth which, which might be greater than us? And here I'm speaking as a philosopher.
0: Yeah, sure. I
1: mean, all science has proceeded for all these centuries by not inventing things first, by discovering them. That's very interesting. Which means that there is an intelligence at work in the universe, which you apprehend through the categories of your science, which you develop theories out of through your imagination and your reasoning, and then you go testing in the laboratory and so on. Now, if we keep that sort of a perspective, then I don't think we are allowed to say that man is the measure of all things. Mm. (laughs) Or rather, if I was to amend it, I would say something in man or something in humanity, is perhaps greater than man, if I may put it so. And one has to judge very carefully whether one is taking a decision anthropocentrically or if one is taking it anthroporesponsibly. And the answers may be quite sometimes diametrically different.
0: And what do you mean by responsiveness? How would that come to be? Uh...
1: Well, uh, there because
0: it's, are, it, it, it's it's obviously a multi-dimensional sort of a problem. I mean, it's not like you just have to solve it in the context of water
1: and you're done. Well, let's just consider it very simply for an individual like mm-hmm. you or for me. Uh, we could make a decision, for instance, if we are stuck in a traffic jam, mm-hmm. uh, as you see happening in India all the time. Each one tries to take the 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 the, the, the free rider route, right? right to break the rule, to go by the side and cause a bigger jam in the process, right? Now, your short-term interests may dictate something which is actually very rational from your perspective, and it might even work from your perspective. But is that something you would think of as an anthropo-responsible way of acting? Or is that... A short-term selfish way of acting. So there are multiple modes of acting inside a human being's motivational frame. And I think all of us have those multiple capacities. It's a question of whether we respond from the surface and from a limited time frame and just from me, myself, and I, or me, my family, and I sort of you know, perspective, or whether we have a bigger motivational basis. I mean, take. let me give you another example. I mean, take something like reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people in economics and outside might think that reciprocity is the same as exchange. Right. I'll do something for you in the expectation that you will de- do something for me either right then or tomorrow. So it's, it, may, it may
0: not be transactional, but there is something coming back at a future
1: point in time. No, not just that. I mean, ecological reciprocity to me means something much deeper. Mm-hmm. I can't return my debt to my parents But what they've handed to me, I can pass on to my children, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the way humanity has traditionally evolved Mm -hmm. and survived for so long. If we lose that sense of reciprocity, we are finished, I believe, as a species. It's a very, very fundamental, you know, species reciprocity, which we are in danger of losing because of short-termism and because of the expectation that I'll do something for you only if you'll do something for me. I mean, consider this, just to take, the, uh, play devil's advocate for a moment, you could potentially monetize, commodify and monetize the services rendered by parents to their children yep. as parental care. Yep. The GDP would grow, numbers would look good, but is that going to be a good society? Yep. So there is a trade-off at some point between economy and society. The economy must once again become a subset of society rather than the other way around. Right Yeah. Right. <laughs> right now, we are looking at it in some sort of... So today, the superset is the economy. Yeah, exactly. And society has been reduced to the social sector. So this you know,
0: consciousness so. and this intuition, is this very old? Were the people in the 17th century thinking this way? I mean, if you just think of conservation, Dr. Karanth, over the last many decades i don't even know whether that notion can go back several centuries uh you know there was this myth of super abundance you know a lot of nature is there for us to live with make use of and so on and you know obviously a lot of some of what we've been talking about today uh it's 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 shared it's a shared intuition it's a shared knowledge it's shared understanding but historically has this always been the case how how and how would you think of the different underlying philosophies of con- conservation? I think it may be a good place to go to.
3: I think historically, basically, if you look at all the waves of beliefs, see, about fifty thousand years ago, we discovered language, then started forming a different. That was a kickstarter. We spread out of Africa, occupied the whole globe in the next ten, fifteen thousand years.
0: Sure.
3: And the first wave of people had very very little control over nature so these were the animistic cultures that they were at the mercy at the, of nature it was yeah, the other one. they were more at the mercy yeah. as we invented fire uh, as we invented agriculture, animal husbandry, 10,000 years ago, you got these polytheistic religions, Hinduism, Greek, uh, the Roman, whatever. And they had a little more control, but they still had many gods. Who, they didn't, these were all attempt to explain their place in nature. So they had this very complicated um, multi, multiple uh, god religions, of which Hinduism is the only one that's surviving. Others died out. Sure. Then as they got more control over nature and natural resources and their societies, the Judeo-Christian religions which said all people are equal and, you know, there's one God, they came to prominence. So, I think the view of nature has changed from us being kind of dominated by nature to, uh, and with the advent of industrial revolution, technology and rationalism, that sense of being in control is even more now. So what we view as nature has certainly changed. With it, it has changed as what we should do with it. So so we have gone from being at the mercy to
0: mastering it at some level.
3: Yeah. And now I think having pushed the limits of the Earth's biosphere's capacity with current technologies, we are kind of straining and we are suddenly recognizing the problem. But at the same time, I don't think there's a solution back in the past to any of this. We can't roll the clock back. Yeah, we need to keep pushing on and be smarter, be more intelligent and more uh, uh, more moral in some sense. Be more responsible, as Asim said. Uh, so our view of nature has changed. And as far as conservation strategies go,
0: uh, what's the way to go about it? So you mentioned a little while ago that maybe 4% of Earth's mass is... Yeah, first, we
3: have to define conservation properly. What is conservation? What is conservation? Uh, a lot of people think conservation is about being kind to animals. <laughs> it's not. It's not anthropocentric. The dog in the street, the mosquito, and the tiger are equally valuable, and they should all have a part in decision making. This is the extreme form of. Mm, animal animal <laughs> welfareism or animal rights i mean there are people who sure. hold deep ecology there are people who hold these views obviously i am d- not going down that route so conservation is that is that simply because you believe it's impractical or yeah i think it's uh, impractical to walk into the studio and walk across without stepping on something sure so uh, but to me the issue is conservation involves three things one is certainly the one that we are facing particularly in the context of india which is preservation of what is rare what is dwindling what's gone so it may be sundarbans it may be a tropical rainforest it may be the um, last mauritius kestrel certainly that's a major part of it but that's not the only part the example professor huck brought up of five of the major five major fisheries have completely collapsed mm-hmm. because we we didn't manage it right. So not all conservation is preservation. It's also management of fisheries, management of certain harvestable natural resources, wild populations, fisheries being a very good example. And
0: when you say management, you mean management it in Management in the sense? sense
3: that you are not trying to preserve it for its rarity alone. Mm-hmm. You are trying to use it at the same time. Sure. So there is preservation, there's use, and then there is a set of issues where the animals or organisms can seriously harm human interests. It could be a man-eating tiger. It could be a rogue elephant. It could be some sort of a outbreak of a disease in a particular uh, species of rat or whatever you want. So, uh, destroying creatures to promote human welfare is also part of conservation. To me, conservation is all these three things. But this is a very Western view of conservation. It's not the Oriental view, which I think is more muddied. What is
0: the Oriental view?
3: Oriental view. I'm not sure how they would even divide all these things. <laughs> I think this is a rational, post-environment view. <laughs> <laughs> is the what is
0: nature, Asim? What is nature? Is is that a straightforward thing? Not, um, a,
1: not at all. <laughs> it's it's a it's a very complicated question, actually. Uh, uh, there would always
0: be a strain of anthropocentrism to everything we do.
1: No. Okay. I I think human beings are capable of something greater than anthropocentrism. Um, Let me answer your question about what is nature by, let me answer it obliquely. Please. By actually clarifying something which people don't always distinguish between, uh, which is natural science and universal science. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, there was a time in the not-so-distant past when perhaps the distinction was less. But today, uh, so much of what is going on in the world uh, by way of uh, technology and certainly science is actually based on what I would say is universal science, Mm -hmm. which is to say that there is an imagination at work. It is an imagination in the end in the ultimate sense according to which there is a place to stand outside the earth and look at ourselves right the archimedean uh, right. wish if you if you if you wish is answered right so for instance even if you look at uh, and uh, you know you look at a modern weapon like a hydrogen bomb mm. uh, it's based on what uh, some scientists have understood to be the thermonuclear reactions going on on the sun yeah importing that understanding and actually blowing a weapon like that on planet earth yeah where the reaction doesn't happen in any natural known state yeah right so you create that based on your knowledge of the universe not just of nature on earth so right? for you
0: natural is non-synthetic
1: I'm not sure natural is non-synthetic. I don't think so. so. I mean, In, in, in what I, sense do we bring I, in? I'm, I'm saying that the spatial assumptions, mm. uh, in the spatial assumptions on which natural science traditionally was based are quite different from the spatial assumptions on which universal science is based, which has implications which are enormously different for all organic life on Earth. Right? Uh-huh. Now, uh, so when you ask the question, what is nature? Does nature include the moon, for instance? Uh, Does nature include the sun? (laughs) Yeah. There are all those questions which one has to think about. So uh, people don't normally think about these things. There's an assumption very tacitly at work through all our educational upbringing as per which, you know, universal science and natural science are actually the same thing. It's almost a sort of curricular distinction based on how the disciplines are arranged in a university. Well, that's not how it is ontologically speaking. I'm speaking from a philosophy of science perspective, right? Right. So one has to think about that. And then one has to ask the same question from the opposite angle, which is to say, are we looking at the tree of nature as though from the outside? Or are we one of the branches or one of the, uh, the leaves or something on the tree itself? Right. So the very simple imagery, uh, whereby one has to clarify that one is a part of nature and nature is a part of us. There are millions of lives being lived inside this body yep. by creatures and microbes of whose existence I have not the dimmest idea. Some of them will ultimately take my life, probably. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and so much anthropocentrism has happened over the centuries, which is fundamentally resting on a premise of power. If I can kill another creature, then I must be superior to it. By by that logic, a virus is potentially superior to a human being. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, that's not the way to think about it, I believe. That's a very limited way to think about it, which is why I said that we are capable of much better thinking than anthropocentrism. And I therefore will not settle for that.
0: Yeah. No, that's very, very, very interesting. What do you have to say to that, Prof. Sathak? What does economics have to say to this... Uh Entire notion of trying to value the invaluable.
2: Well, I think uh, I and you know, Dr. Oshim's assertion is fantastic. You know, I like the idea that you you think about the whole exchange issue, of of, a, of a doing something between two alternatives versus yeah. you look at the definition of uh, you know think through and see what how do you see philosophically. And I think philosophical issue has been always there in the mind of the people. What economics does actually is not going to that philosophical boundary. But in the current use and alternative use boundaries, what is the best way to allocate resources? But as what I mentioned, our, our objective is always anthropocentric. But I think back as a human being, we always have to think responsibly because we are the In a way, I agree with him. We have to think differently. But that definition and the way of we accommodate things between choices now are completely different. So I think we are are always, you know, in a way fighting within us. In right. that. And that's why I mentioned to you that I should not give a value to Sundarban. That's, that's, very a, interesting. that's a mistake because that's when you are acting irresponsibly. That's
0: very interesting. You know,
2: it is important to find out that, okay, if the Sundarban is lost, partially lost, what is the cost to human being? And when you expand that definition of human being as far as into the future, you might eventually... Uh, merge the concept of philosophical boundaries with economic. The problem with the tools we are using, that expansion is very limited. And so you have to, you know, somehow we are making a choice which may not be perfect, but it is one way of solving a puzzle. And it's one way of conserving nature. i give you one example. Resources, either it is uh, material resources or animal resources, which are in trouble in the world, are those resources which has no market value. So think about any product. If you look at the chicken, the best example probably, chickens are still surviving and probably more chickens in any country than human being
1: because (laughs) chicken
2: has market value. But look at the other animals which has no exchange. And and those are in the sidelines. So what environmental economics are doing as a tool to create the other value which is not marketed and trying to find out, Look at that value and then look at the exchange.
0: So now you're making the tiger prawn. Exactly. So that's what I'm so trying to do. prawns are more because valuable. Because prawns are more
2: valuable because tigers has no market. And that's why economists come in and say, look, I'm, I'm going to create some value. Give you a notion. The notion of finding a value to the human being if it is lost. In a way, it is to me the opportunity that would be lost to humanity if the tigers are gone and that should be the concept of value but looking at a concept of value the way you people normally think about what is the price of this right. lake what is the price of this mountain I think that's absurd
0: right <laughs> that's interesting that's very very interesting where is all of this going to go in the future where do you see this uh, for 500 days out uh, Dr. Karunth uh, I... Both the notion of value as well as, you know, just just speaking of uh, Earth in general, and then Asim is in a way pulled in the moon and the sun as well. Um, Where is conservation going to go? What are the underlying philosophies? How are they likely to transform? And do you feel optimistic overall?
3: I feel reasonably optimistic based on my own lifespan of 50, 50 years of kind of being interested in nature. Last 50 years. 50 years ago, if you had asked me this question, whether, again, uh, let me step back a little. I think my definition of nature at this point is basically biological nature, confined to the biosphere of the earth. I'm not. I'm sure there are other life forms in other galaxies and if we find them, I'm sure there's some unifying principles just like physics can be derived. But at this point, we so have... Your approach
0: is more pragmatic. No,
3: pragmatic and restricted to my world. Sure. Uh, so, given that, 50 years ago, if you had asked me as a teenager when I ran around Western Ghats looking for wildlife and birds, I would have said N- nothing will survive we yeah. <laughs> yeah everything was being hunted out the forests were being laid waste our life expectation was at birth was some 30 or 35 or 40 years our population was 300 million economic growth rate was 1 or 2% and yet everything was on the verge of extinction 50 years later now in the same landscape where there are less than 50 tigers left, there are 400 tigers, there's far more many people, life expectancy has doubled, economic growth has increased. So in my own view... And I, this has to do with human intervention? It has to do with human intervention. It has to do with the process called development. Right. I think, uh, so... I am so not the, see, So uh, development is not the devil for you here? I, I'm saying it can be the devil if you are not smart. I'm saying given this experience, I I do not feel pessimistic about, necessarily pessimistic that we'll be dumb and we'll continue to do damage. So I think if we are intelligent and use, I'm a great admirer of economics actually, I think it is a driver of what people do, regardless of what philosophers sit and speculate, most people do most of the time act on economic basis. So If we integrate that properly, if we integrate conservation, technology, science and economics properly, I think it can be a better place. And the current projection is that the Earth's population will, I mean, it looks like even from the flattening growth rates around 8, 9, 10 billion, whatever. And it is a question of how we manage when we hit that peak, and then it'll start going down. and i five hundred years from now, I'll probably see a much smaller human population on earth and a lot more wild areas and wild nature. If you oh, are smart.
0: That's interesting. Prof, where do you think this is all headed? and what is uh, what does development have to do with this? How would you interlink the two?, no, I
2: think I think the pressure for human being to think, to expand their horizon beyond just, Looking at our own utility of the current generation is pushing the correction in a way. So when we say that we are doing environmental valuation, what we are doing, we are bringing the other generation who are non-participating currently, their values into us.
0: How old is... uh... Environmental valuation, environmental economics as a field, as, as as consciousness.
2: Well, I think if you if if you really think philosophically, even even Ricardo's time, David Ricardo's, you know, that's 17th century. He his idea of looking at fertility of land as generating value is pretty old. So. I think that was the use value. What is happening now, we are looking at the more of the other values that we are missing. Mm. And I think the more we look into the future, more we see those values being integrated into our decision-making process. The, the reason that we pushed a lot of our uh, issue environmental issues outside uh, previously was because we were not incorporating those values inside. Now with these techniques, with this analysis, what is happening, before you take a decision, consider today, consider tomorrow. Consider what is useful right now. Consider what might be useful in tomorrow. Consider the aesthetic part of it. People you know, like the wilderness, people like nature. They're ready to spend millions of dollars for that
0: but Professor and, Huck, there is no such thing as monolithic people right I mean there are people all across the socioeconomic spectrum the people who have different choices the people who are up on the development curve if we I mean, the discount rates are different for different people uh, the discount rate is, a, is
2: a completely in, in a different way that's what I was going to come back and let me push back on the in terms of thinking uh, the discount rate is, a, is a, to me is a, is a concept that uh, we actually look at only one generation. If we have multiple generations, uh, then discounting for what? I think when you look at the, and I think uh, Dr. Ashim has mentioned this, the financial viewpoint versus economic viewpoint. Yeah. The fundamental difference between these two viewpoints, when you look at the financial viewpoint, you look at and somebody who is owning the resources. When you look at the economic vo- point of view, you look at the society's point of view, human But still a society is not one person owning it. It's a society as a whole. So is there a notion
0: of right that comes
2: into this? Right from from whose point of view is important. If you look at it from the point of view of right, human being uh, from from several generations uh, are actually looking from the whole society. So when I say we are using the tool for conservation we are using values coming here we are looking at this from the whole human society which is not today but also in future and I think that continuum that looking from one generation to the next generation to the next generation eventually make the society you know correct the mistakes so there is no way of saying that this is the best one but it is what we are doing and the more we go into those definitional correction conceptual correction bringing the future into our Definition bringing other use of nature into human, and you know, even aesthetic values into our concept. I think we correct the use of resources. So that is the ultimate way. And you that think
0: I- it actually has a feedback loop into is, the way you use the resource as well.
2: It is. You can also do that. And 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 that way, we. You know, I would not be pes- you know pessimistic. I would say yes. Human being has strategy. You know, created a mechanism through which we are going to look into the future. Continuously And yes, as we go into the future, we probably would be conserving more and more. Uh, end of the day, whether we'll be more human being versus less human being in future, I have no idea about it. But I think it's an issue that is coming back to some society already. Some society has minus population growth, negative population growth. It tells you that yes, as we go into the future, our notion of life also changes. And through that, through the institutions built around us, we reorient our philosophical boundaries and concepts also. At one time in a society like India, Bangladesh, we look at family being supportive of us during our old age. Right. In another set of institutions, you would remove that. You said, no, that's not the reason why we have families. We have a completely different reason for that. So that as institutions and around us changes, we try to correct it. And through those, we go into the future. So I'm not pessimistic on that
0: and is that fairly consistent across different economies different countries uh, you know the link that you're making in a way between population growth and let's say the notion of family
2: i think it is it is it is more or less similar across but as the institutions are different so at the at any given moment of time you see we have a significantly different values
0: sure. because
2: institutions around us are not same Sure. But if you look at it as a process and you will see eventually they are merging towards a human concept. And that's how we would say all a human being is one race. And that is one way to look at human being as one unit of human as a race and say this is what we are.
0: So in a way you're saying that in the beginning the inequality you know, for, for the second if you were to invoke Kuznets theorem or uh, hypothesis it would increase but then later on there would be several that's,
2: self-correcting. That's what the Kuznets hypothesis is. Uh, the only thing that we normally caution, and, and this is a caution for everyone, to yeah. look into the boundaries of nature, which means in some cases, if you go beyond the boundaries of fixation of nature, then you might lose it, and that's What do you where, mean by that? What which do you mean means, like boundaries? for example, you have ex, you have removed this, you know, you have pushed this species towards extinction. And then bringing back is very difficult. So I think those are the boundaries. Those are what we say uh, non-convexities in a concept of economics which has to be taken care of. And as long as those boundaries we take care of perfectly, there is always, I'm not very pessimistic
3: on this.
0: Are there, so, are there population levels, Dr. Karanth, which uh, are the danger level from a conservation extinction standpoint?
3: Oh, of course. Many, many, many mammal species have vanished. Many birds have vanished. And fisheries is a very good example. Oceanic fisheries, whole fisheries have collapsed. Because exactly the reasons professors point that there are boundaries. If, if you are dry for growth transgresses those boundaries, then those uh, sustainability issues, even in a purely economic sense, doesn't hold. You move from one resource to other, exhausting it. And those losses are permanent. Yes. They are. Yeah, because...
0: Is there any uh, way
3: of bringing uh, any of the lost species back? Natural evolution, there have been extinctions. There have been big extinction spasms in the past, when a meteorite hit the Earth 60 million years ago. Mass extinctions. Mass extinctions. But the replacement took place. Now what is happening is a one way kind of an extinction that is induced by human beings where there is no replacement of equivalent species. Overall other species may come. more. Mi- there may be more microbes. And what and do you
0: mean by equivalent species? Equivalent
3: seeing. What you are seeing is actually extinction of in most parts of the world, anything larger than a bread box, the big, warm-bodied <laughs> creatures are are the ones that are under most threat. There is a paper by Shipper and others in Science that shows the extinctions are so. The not
0: extinction th- rates are higher above a certain body size.
3: A certain body size, certain uh, diet, certain rarity traits, uh, which makes them very difficult once you push over the uh, to bring them back from a preservation perspective. And the fisheries is a good example of a utilitarian use conservation perspective. So, uh, I think... Those are cases of overuse. Overuse. Trawling, overuse. Overuse, but also things like the blue whale are very large creatures which are being pushed using, uh, you know, similar pressures. So, to me, waiting till the last moment or waiting for loss of species... In fact, I would say that environmentalists or environmentalism... And nature conservation are not the same thing. Just like Asim said, economics is a part of the larger social... uh, Economics
0: is a part of society. Should
3: be. Should be. Similarly, environmentalism encompasses a lot of things of which nature conservation is a small part of the spectrum. Environmentalism essentially looks at human welfare. It wants the world to be a better place. So Delhi should have less pollutants, our sewage should be, drinking water should be clean. All these are targeted at us primarily. Whereas nature conservation, for a moment you shed that and take this responsiveness that uh, Asim talked about and view it from the perspective of all these other creatures, not at the level of individuals, but at least at the species level. So, you would include
0: things like preserving cultures as a part of environmentalism in a way? Yeah, yeah. in a way.
3: Anything, and you know, whatever dance forms, uh, you know, whether (laughs) you should destroy ancient Egyptian (laughs) museums, whatever.
0: Interesting. Asim, what is your take? What Are you pessimistic, optimistic? What would be your take as a philosopher and an economist and an economist philosopher?
1: Well, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I think of myself as uh, one philosopher put it as a possibilist. <laughs> so there's a very, very wide range of possibilities open to humanity and the earth now, thanks to the growth of the technosphere over the last quarter of a millennium. The amplitude of possibilities has never been greater. So the risks are as high as the opportunities, uh, if you get my drift. I actually think of a financier. So, my
0: question is what are the opportunities? And we'll.
1: I'll I'll come to that. Sure. Uh, I'll actually uh, relate a little story from a financier friend in Uh in London who. You know, uh, ended up becoming a conservationist. Uh Uh, I met him at a World Conservation Congress in South Korea a few years back. And I was puzzling over why somebody like that would become a conservationist. Uh And so I asked Adam, you know, what's his story? So he related the following story, which I think would make sense in this context. please. It's a bit long. It'll take me two minutes to tell it. So he's at a restaurant in Boston. About 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, uh, he meets up with three old friends and they order some food at this restaurant. And he notices that each one is ordering food from a different continent. Somebody gets Argentinian beef, somebody gets Norwegian salmon. And they're sitting in Boston. Nobody orders good old clam chowder from, you know, Cape Cod. <laughs> so, he says, the first penny dropped in my mind, which was that, you know... Imagine uh, the food miles. All the, all, the, all the food we are eating is jet-lagged. And we are paying $60, $80 per dish and so on. All the conversation he said that evening was about debt. how much, How many millions does each of them owe? But when it came to paying the bill... They all took out their credit cards. <laughs> so then, then the next penny dropped, which was how does how do, how do people who have so much debt have any credit on their side? And then he said, I quickly drew two graphs in my mind, and and these are the two graphs he draws. So on the horizontal axis is time, starting 1971. 1971. On the, 71. On the vertical axis is money and credit since that time. And the graph is fairly exponential. So Mm -hmm. there's an exponential growth of money and credit since the early 70s. Basically, since the time the dollar went off gold.
0: Yeah, credit driven growth.
1: And in the bottom quadrant, on the vertical axis, he draws species extinction. And that's, he says, virtually a mirror image of the graph in the upper quadrant. So he says, I put two and two together and I felt like I was a criminal in my day job, so I quickly called up my wife and I said, we have to do something. And that's (laughs) when she suggested we set up a conservation fund. So, uh, you see, that's the nature of the problem, that there is an abstract world uh, which is made up, as we know, of mathematics and measurable magnitudes and which can go to any numbers we want. But Ontologically speaking, there's a natural world, there's a biological world, as Dr. Karanth was saying, which is fairly finite. And if we confuse the two... So, and, if,
0: and do these concepts go hand in hand? A finite natural world or a biosphere, whichever way we think of it, and the priceless tag we seem to be putting on it?
1: And the priceless tag or the price tag?
0: Or the priceless tag. We're calling it invaluable.
1: If we do... The point is that most of the time nowadays we are not doing that. Yeah. So the point is that if we price it properly, then actually a lot of these things will be forbiddingly expensive for anybody to think in terms of buying or selling them in the first place. Yeah. The problem with it is, like I was saying earlier, the rider which should go with it is nobody should be able to dream of a bigger number. <laughs> Otherwise you get into the temptation of buying and selling. And you see, this is where I come back to my original argument about the distinction between valuation and measurement and Mm. measurement in terms of money. You know, I think of a line from William Blake's uh, Marriage of Heaven and Hell. He writes two centuries ago. It's a very beautiful line. He says, "Uh, bring out number, weight and measure in a time of death. Right. Right. So that's when we begin to count, when things get scarce. Nobody thinks of counting the hair on your head. At the time of abundance, you don't count. Yeah, exactly. When there's so much greenery that you don't think of counting the blades of grass and so on. But when it starts to get scarce is when we start counting, and that's time to start worrying. So uh, I'm completely with Dr. Karan that the population levels, uh, especially in human society, will have to stabilize at a much lower level. I'm not sure how that will happen, but I can see <laughs> that that will have to happen. Of course, in principle, you can half the population and double the greed and come up with the same set of problems. Or you can double the population and half the greed, whichever way you work it out. But I think that you know because of the use of fossil fuels uh, since 200 years ago, uh, 250 years ago in the case of coal and 150 years ago in the case of oil, what are we doing? I mean, if we reflect on that for a minute, we are actually happy to consume in months and weeks what the earth takes millions of years to make. right? Yeah, we're not allowed to do that actually. We're not allowed to do that. By the laws of natural science, we wouldn't be doing that. So there's clearly you know an unsustainability built into the very structure of a modern industrial economy which uses energy sources like that. So if we are to become more intelligent or wiser, smarter, then one of the minimum requirements is to think of energy sources which are actually in conformity with the rhythms and cycles of the natural world. So if you can't, you know, use something... And that, how would
0: this happen? Through transformation of human consciousness? Yeah, just sensing imminent danger and...
1: Ultimately, I think a whole spate of, uh, you know, terrible climate related events will happen which will change human consciousness I don't see any shortcut at this point because we don't seem to be responding fast enough we live I believe in a technological world I don't believe we live in a scientific world most of us because we're not responsive to facts in the way that we should be we don't even have the institutions to respond to facts and in, in the what way sense of the
0: word do you uh, differentiate science from technology
1: That'll take us a long time to... (laughs) But basically, I think the distinction between discovery and invention is very important. Right. And while the two are intimately bound up, which one is based on what we should always remember? So there's an underlying state of things which human mind has some capacity to apprehend. And as a philosopher, I would say we also have definite epistemic limits. In ecological terms, I always make the distinction between ecological ignorance and ecological unknowability. Mm -hmm. You know, ecological ignorance can be remedied with more knowledge. Ecological unknowability cannot be. Right. Uh, And I think we need to bear that in mind, which is why the precautionary principle of the Rio conference is so important. Today that lies forgotten, but that needs to be brought back simply because it's one of the basic canons of science. I mean, let alone the use of science, you know. So you are on the right side where you don't know. And there's a whole set of things we don't know. We simply don't know. Such as? Uh, Such as, I mean, if you think in terms of valuation, uh, what sort of discount rates to apply to humanity five generations from now in relation to today? I mean, how would they view, you know, what world they face? How would they view that? And what would their values be, even in terms of numbers? What, How would they value those things? I mean, these are things which are impossible to know, simply impossible to know. Though, therefore, we live in a world of second or third or fourth best, you know, since decisions have to be made, since we have to move in some sense. Uh, we, we must accept those limits, uh, but be humble rather than hubristic about what we can know and what we can do. There's only a whole uh, limited set of things that human beings can do when it comes to changing the order of things uh, that we are talking about. I mean, there's there's, there's a whole uh, reason why myths have been so powerful and so important in every culture, whether it's the Promethean myth in Greece or so many of our own myths from our own epics. Uh, so... Uh, You know, science is a very, very rigorous form of knowledge. It yields very powerful results. But by the same token, uh, that rigor applies within a limited domain and limited frame, you know. And there are large elements of life beyond that frame, which another science in another generation comes to find out about and say, oh my God, all this time we have been wrong. Right. So uh, then what, you know? So that's why I'm saying the precautionary principle should be in order when it comes to applying science to create innovations in order to change the order of things.
0: Thank you. That's, I think that's a nice possible uh, note to end this on. And we all look forward to getting to somewhere decent 500 years out. Hope to have you soon again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.